And we can turn back to the chapter we read there, Nehemiah chapter 9. I want to reread the first six verses. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Yeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Yeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashab, Benaiah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Peth Ahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Well, this month has been a busy one for the people in Jerusalem. You can see from verse 1, it's now the 24th day. On the previous chapter, they had uh, celebrated two feasts. Uh, One feast, the Feast of Trumpets, it was held on the first of the month, lasted for a, a day. And then, as we noted last time, They discovered after reading the Bible that they should keep another feast. Uh, This time it ran from the 15th day to the 22nd, the Feast of Tabernacles. And as the writer tells us, rather surprisingly, this was the first time that that particular feast had been kept properly since the days of Joshua. So down the long history of Israel, uh, their ancestors had failed to keep this law, this feast, the way they should have. And therefore, it's not surprising that in the subsequent prayer that's mentioned here in chapter 9, they keep stressing the faults of their fathers. Whatever else may be uh, said, about uh, people here in chapter 9 they didn't idealize the past and they just were realistic about what had been done in previous generations it didn't mean the Feast of Tabernacles hadn't been held because we are told it was held in the days of Solomon and in subsequent periods but it hadn't been held the way God had specified. And therefore, this 
group of people here under Nehemiah, uh, they discovered that they could do it more appropriately, which they did. And they tell us that in chapter 8. And that feast lasted from the 15th day to the 22nd. There was probably another feast in between the first of the month and the 15th, and that would have been on the 10th, because that was the annual day of atonement. But no mention is actually made of that in the book of Nehemiah, so we don't know if they kept it or not. Anyway, on day 23, they had a day off. And then on day 24, they met as described in this chapter. Um, They probably took a day off because how would you move from the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a very happy occasion? How would you move to that, to the event that was described here in chapter 9? A day that's, as we can see, from verse 1, is marked by fasting. Well, whatever they did in the day of Feast of Tabernacles, they didn't fast. And also that they're wearing sackcloth and with earth on their heads. Signs of sadness. Mourning. And whatever else they did in the Feast of Tabernacles, they didn't mourn. It was a very happy occasion. So I suppose we can see there's wisdom in the fact they took a 23rd day off. Because how do you just move from happy occasion to a sad occasion? Because chapter 9 is about a sad occasion. But having said that, the fact that they only took uh, one day off indicates there's a sense of urgency. Whatever they were going to do on day nine, and, sorry, sorry, on day 24, recorded in chapters 9 and 10, they knew they had to do it quickly. So therefore they didn't delay in bringing about this um, occasion, which is all connected to do with signing a covenant with God. And I suppose when we think about that, that's quite serious, isn't it? Because what is signing a covenant with God? It's making promises. Promises that they would intend to keep. But therefore they had to set a day apart for doing this. So uh, there's a lot in this particular chapter. And it's not really possible to consider it all in one go. So we'll just see what we can learn from the first six verses. In verses 1 to 5, we're told what they actually did. And since we're told what they did, there must be some kind of importance about that. How they did it. It's written down there for us to note that and just take it on board, as it were, and note that they did this. And then in verse 5, there's a call to worship. A call to worship that's given by some of the Levites. What does it mean to be called to worship? 
And then in verse 6, we have their initial words about God. What they said to him. I suppose since the Holy Spirit inspired these particular verses, not merely inspired them in a sense that they're mentioned, but inspired, I suspect, for imitation. How do we speak to God? What do we say to him? Well, I think this chapter tells us some things that should be said to God just to confess his greatness. So we'll just look at these three things briefly. So first of all, what they did. And um, regarding them, we're told about, we could call their attire and their actions what they wore, and what they did. The clothing, well, sackcloth and with earth on their heads, that was a a common way of expressing outer conformity to their inner feelings. There had to be some kind of um, expression in their clothing that revealed what was in their hearts. Now, of course, it's obvious that people could pretend. And Jesus uh, condemned people who pretended. But at the other side of things, it's obviously an indication And what's striking to me about them there, as they're described in verse 1, is that they all did it. So it was a real sense of unity and harmony, wasn't there? None of them objected to this communal desire to come before God and to freely say to him what had gone wrong. Now, there's a certain sense in which these people personally were not to blame for the mess they were in. They hadn't been alive when the Lord's judgment had come on Israel and their forefathers had been sent into exile. They hadn't personally contributed anything to those circumstances. But as they say here very clearly, the fact that they hadn't contributed personally didn't mean they were part of the community that did it. What their forefathers had done they acknowledged was done by the same group of people that they belonged to you can't divide Israel up into 
good Israel and bad Israel. All you have is Israel. And the blessings we want to apply to ourselves, the blessings that our forefathers knew, that our blessings. But the sins that our forefathers did, their failures, that our failures too. And we can't, as it were, walk away from them any more than these people here could. So that attire was saying something. And the fact that they all did it indicated their harmony. We are here together to acknowledge to God things are not what they should be. And they haven't been that way for a long time. And I suppose that's a very relevant question, isn't it? How responsible are we the wrong actions of previous generations. Well, these Israelites accepted their responsibility. He also, as we can see in verse 2, that they separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Why did they not want foreigners to participate. Well, there's two kinds of foreigners that Israel had to deal with at any given time. One group was foreigners that wanted to become Israelites. Another group was foreigners that didn't want to become Israelites. And it's the second ones here that are mentioned when there's separation. How could they have people joining them on this solemn occasion who didn't believe in the God to whom they were confessing their sins? So here's another way of expressing their unity. The ones who were involved in it had a heart for it. And those that had no heart for it, well, they weren't to be there. God wants genuineness when people are coming to him to confess their sin. And that's what they were doing on this occasion. So sometimes that does involve separation. Separation of heart. All of them had this burden. And if you didn't have the burden, how could they participate? It was impossible. But then we're told something else they did, and that's how long they did it and the order in which they did it. And we are told that they spent a quarter of the day uh, listening to the word of God being read in chapter 3, and then a quarter of the day making confession and worshipping the Lord their God. So the quarter of a day refers to the daylight hours. And in Israel it was quite easy to work things out because they had 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of darkness. 
So a quarter of the day, like, would be three hours, and they did three hours reading, sorry, listening to the Word of God that was read, and three hours responding to the Word of God that was read. So we could say they probably started at six in the morning. So from six till nine, they listened to the Word of God being read. And then from nine till noon, they responded. And of course, there's a measure of common sense in their arrangement of time. Because obviously the heat that would be there at noonday and the subsequent hours would not have made it suitable for having their gathering. Imagine standing in the sun at the heat of the day. That wouldn't happen. Wouldn't be very good, would it? So they had what we could call common sense in their arrangement. But... It's important to note the order. There was three hours listening to the word of God. And then three hours confessing their sin. And what does that indicate to us? Well, I think it indicates that their confession was immediate. It was done to what they heard. They didn't, as it were, have to rack their memories and say, now, what have I got to mention to God? But rather, they just listened to what God's word said, and they, having heard it, well, they had to respond to it. I mean, what's taking place when God's word is read? Well, the king is speaking. His laws were being repeated. There had to be some kind of reaction. They couldn't just go home after reading the word. They couldn't just say, well, we've heard the Bible, now let's all go home. They had to react to what they heard. Because remember, they're making a covenant. And every time the Bible is read, it's a covenant statement. And there has to be a suitable reaction. Can't just say, well, that's it. Some, some silly questions are asked at times. And I've usually asked most of them myself at times. But one of them is, What's the most important part of worship? The point of that question, of course, is the problem with that question is that it indicates there are some parts of worship that are not important. This covenant would not have been signed in the next chapter if they hadn't had the three hours listening and the three hours responding. And that's common sense, isn't it? Now, if it was me, I don't think I'd have too much problem with the first three hours. But the second three, I think that's where the, the rubber hits the road, isn't it? Because it's impossible to hear the word of God and not have it speak to us. 
So they confessed for three hours. That's a long time, isn't it? Just imagine it. One minute passes. Two minutes. Sixty minutes. Still 120 to go. I think the reason they stopped after three hours was not because they had run out of sins to confess, but just because the heat of the sun. So they just stood there and read from the, heard the word of God and they confessed their sins. And the confession, as we mentioned earlier, was multi-generational. How far back do they go? Well, they go right back to the start. They go back to Abraham. If that was, say, us, what would we include? If it's multi generational. The early church. The Middle Ages. The Reformation, the Puritans, the Great Awakening, disruption, the missionary movement. They left nothing out. It wasn't just the declines that they mentioned. They mentioned the times of religious prosperity. This is all interconnected. They were where they were because of their ancestors. We are where we are because of those who have gone before us. Those who come after us will be where they are because of us as well as others. And God expects us to recognize that. And we can see the Levites when they're taking a prominent role because in verse 5 some of them cried, sorry, verse 4 some of them the names are mentioned. We haven't a clue who they are. But God thought, I'll let you know who they are or were. So when we read their names, some of them sound quite funny. But on this occasion, they were crying with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And they're to be commended for that.
And then some more are mentioned in chapter 5, different ones. They respond to the ones who are speaking in verse 4. And obviously, by the time we get to verse 5, the people in general have sat down because they're told to stand up. So after their um, time of listening to the word of God and their time of confession, well, they were probably very tired. But anyway, they're told to stand up. And that's where we have the call to worship in verse 5. And it's clear from what's said there in verse 5. Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Whatever else we want to say about that is they've been asked to worship a great God. What does it mean to bless the Lord? It means to speak well of him. It doesn't mean to keep repeating the word bless. But the word bless basically means to speak about somebody the way they should be spoken about. So we, if we bless, say, other Christians, we remind them what's special about them. We bear in mind that they are also the children of God and so on. We speak well of them. That's what it means to bless. What do we say to God when we want to speak well of him? Well, what do these Levites say about God when they are speaking well of him? Well, I think we can see that they um, point out their relationship to him. Because this Levites say, bless the Lord, your God. Remember your relationship with him as you speak to him. Don't treat him as a distant God. I mean, that's always the danger of reverence, isn't it? Reverence becomes putting God at a distance. Whereas it looks to me as here is that reverence is realizing how close God is. Stand and bless the Lord your God. You're in a relationship with him. He's a God who always is from everlasting to everlasting. I don't know if you ever thought of that statement. Everlasting to everlasting. don't know if it indicates something odd but I don't have any problem thinking of an existence that doesn't end because I don't expect to end myself I'm going to exist for however long anything goes on for the rest of eternity. So therefore it's not too difficult to think that God will also exist for that period. 
with no end. But I do find it hard to think of my own beginning. Can you think of your beginning? I doubt it. I know we all know when each of us began, but how conscious were we of it? But God, he has no beginning. Can never say when God's birthday is. He's always been there. And that's to speak well of him. That's to say about him. You've always been. You haven't got better. You haven't got worse. You're God. And he's the God who we can call by name. As the Levites say there in verse 5, Blessed be your glorious name. That's the name Yahweh. It's the name by which God introduced himself to Moses. Or Jehovah, if we want the older way of putting it. And that's an amazing thing. We know God's name. Or they did. One of the bizarre things about Israel, of course, is that they refused to say it. And therefore today we're not too sure how to pronounce it. God said... I am Yahweh. And they said, we're not going to call you by that name. They were wrong. God had revealed himself as the covenant God, the eternally existent God, the self-sufficient God, the great God. The amazing God. And the least thing they should have done is called him by his name. So that's the call to worship. And then they speak about him some things to start off their their, um, words on this occasion, as we can see there in verse 6. And they say about, you are the Lord, you alone. That means he's unique. No one can be near to him. He's exalted above all blessing and praise. I mean, sometimes worship is estimated by the noise it makes. And of course there's something moving about a large crowd celebrating the greatness of God. 
But the Levites tell us here that it doesn't matter how exultant your time of praise is, God's above it all. No matter how high we ascend in our worship, we never ascend to the level of the Almighty. He's above it. Take every creature ever existed and if they're all to sing together at the height of their abilities, they wouldn't be any closer to God just because they're making wonderful expressions of worship and even in the world to come. God will be God. But there in verse 6, they give three reasons why God should be praised. At least in verse 5 as well. Your glorious name. The Hebrew word for glory means weighty. Weight. Something you can... How heavy is it? One man wrote a book about 20 years ago, The Weightlessness of God. What we've done to him. (coughs) The weightlessness of God. God is heavy, weighty. His glory is seen in his attributes, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. All these words are full of meaning. But if after we have said them, we don't say, what a God. We haven't actually said anything, have we? They're just words. His glory is seen in who he is. And three things are mentioned about him. He's the creator of all things. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. What did I see when I was walking to church today? I saw people. I saw grass. I saw clouds. I saw the earth, the sky. I saw all that. You know what? didn't think of God. But he was there speaking to me. It's amazing how blind we can be, isn't it? Everything that we see and everything that we don't see, God made it. 
doesn't matter where it's in heaven. Because one day he made heaven. God hasn't always lived in heaven. Heaven is a created place. And God doesn't need a place. But one day he decided to make heaven and filled it with angels. And he's made the earth and the universe. He's a great God. His creation is incredible. Things visible and things invisible. And he preserves it all. Why are the chairs you're sitting on not falling apart? Why are we not falling apart? God. He preserves all things. What's our hope that February 2023 will happen? God. And the third thing is he's worshipped by angels. They highlight that. The host of heaven worships you. I don't know if you noticed, but in the first psalm we sang, we spoke to the angels. We didn't just sing about the angels. We actually spoke to them and called on them to worship God. Not that they need any reminding. They do it automatically. But we should think so much of God that we call on them to worship God. That's what these people back here did. They praised God for his weight and for who worships him. The highest creatures that exist. The heavenly host. They are constant in their praise. So we'll stop in a minute. Just a couple of things to mention. God's eternal. He's got a great plan. God is unique. We don't know him as Yahweh. We know him as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Think of the angels. They think of us. They marvel at our worship. They come here to learn from us. And if we want to confess our sins, this is the last thing. Confession of sin doesn't really depend on our knowledge of ourselves. It depends on our knowledge of God, the High and the Holy One, the Almighty. When we see how great He is, we'll see how awful it is to sin against Him. Shall we pray? Lord, we give you thanks that you are God 
who can compare with you? As you said yourself, to whom will you liken me? You are unique, Father, Son, and Spirit, eternal in your communion, eternal in your plans, eternal in your existence, God forever and ever. We rejoice, and that is who you are, the infinite, the almighty, our God forevermore. Help us, Lord, to confess our sins for your own name's sake. Amen.